Thank you so much. That's the Smiths and the Barriers, and uh, also Mitchell and Carol Ann Beck with them. And uh, three generations on the stage together, playing together and worshiping. What a blessing. What a blessing that is. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you would, this morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. I'd like you to turn to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I've actually got three passages that we're going to, in Ecclesiastes, we're going to anchor this in. But we'll start in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 22. If you're just joining us, I've recently finished preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, there were several major themes that were brought out. I've selected three in order to draw our attention to what Scripture says on these matters that have everything to do with our everyday life. Ecclesiastes is such an earthy book that is applicable for us in every way. I've selected the three major themes of work, rest, and suffering. In Ecclesiastes, toil and suffering are major themes that we see throughout the book, And you can't really understand a biblical theology of rest without first understanding God's viewpoint of work. And you can't understand God's viewpoint of work without understanding rest. So these two kind of go together. In fact, I've uh, received some uh, very kind feedback regarding the message from last week about a theology of work and God's perspective on work and how it helped you understand work from God's perspective And um, I want to make sure that we all understand that if you were here last week, we need last week and this week. And if you're just here this week, if you weren't with us last Sunday morning, I would highly encourage you to go back on our website and listen to the message from last Sunday morning. Because they go together, work and rest. Both a biblical theology of work and rest remove an unbiblical guilt that some of us walk around with, am I working enough? Am I not working enough? Am I resting enough? Am I not resting enough? Is it bad for me to take a nap? Is it wrong for me to get more than X amount hours of sleep? Is it wrong for me to get less than this amount of sleep? How much is too much? And all these kind of questions that may drive an unbiblical feeling of guilt You've been bound by some sort of external standard and tied it to your conscience in some way. It also brings about a conviction to work well. Perhaps you were here last week and you found in the message a conviction to work from God's perspective. And perhaps you'll find this morning a conviction to rest well. played sports growing up, and my brother, my younger brother and I are both uh, built differently than my older brother. My older brother was a shortstop uh, in baseball. He was a point guard in basketball. I was always playing the post or was a catcher because I was always built in my frame a little bit bigger, and my dad told me one time in high school, son, you have to remember that you're not a Mustang, you're a Clydesdale, and you need to live life as such or you're going to hurt yourself. When I was uh, living in Indianapolis, I had the opportunity to run the Indianapolis Mini Marathon, the half marathon that runs around the Indy 500 racetrack. Uh, someone had very kindly offered me a ticket that they had purchased, and they weren't, they're going to be out of town, so they gave it to me to run. So I had an ample amount of time, had about 12 weeks to train for it, and thought this would be a great thing for me to do. I am going to run a half marathon, 
right? And I'm going to take it slow. And so I trained and trained and trained up and, and, uh, and trained adequately and found out that in order for me to effectively run the marathon, I was going to uh, need to keep pace of about a nine-minute mile from all my training. Uh, that's about what I could expect to run if I was going to run the half marathon. And so the day came for me to uh, run the marathon, and it was the biggest organized race in the entire world, something to the tune of 40,000 people that year had lined up. We were in, you know, these, these they called, I think they call them corrals that, that you get in that set you back. I mean, I was half a mile behind the starting line. You even get to the starting line. You hear the gun go off, and you just wait, and then slowly you walk, and then you slowly jog up the starting line, and then it starts your time. And um, I had taken two or three days off before the race. I felt really good. And uh, I was jogging with a friend of mine who had trained far more than I had. And we're just jogging and talking away. We get to the first mile marker, and they have uh, clocks. And you know what time you started, and you can subtract, and you can see your time. And I'm like, I am running an eight-minute mile, and I feel great. Man. Something has happened to me in the last three days. The, the protein drink that I drank yesterday really worked well. And so I am just doing awesome, and I get to the second mile marker, and it's still an eight-minute mile, eight minute and ten seconds. Man, I am going to finish this in record time, not knowing that the people who started first were almost already done with the race. Um, Mile three, I'm at eight minutes and 15 seconds, and I'm doing great, and then I hit mile four. And it was like somebody took a sledgehammer and hit me in the chest, just bam! Because I was not keeping the pace that I knew I should have been keeping. And it wasn't as though that I couldn't run an eight-minute mile. It wasn't as though that if I could have pushed myself at that point in my life, I probably could have run a seven-minute mile for one mile or maybe even a a six-and-a-half-minute mile. That may not seem fast to you, but for someone like me, that's cooking it, you know? And but, But I knew my pace. I knew what I needed. I knew the pace I needed to keep, and I didn't stick to it. I thought I knew better, and I paid for it physically. Paid for it emotionally as well because I had to walk part of the race. And that's very difficult to take when everyone around you is still jogging. I'll never forget that feeling of, Joe, you knew what you should have done and you didn't. In our Christian life, friends, we need to live a grace-paced life. That title is not original with me. I'd like to recommend a book for you if you are a reader or you have room in your reading schedule, I think this would be one that would be beneficial for you to read, anyone to read. It's entitled Reset. It's by a guy named David Murray. I had the privilege of sitting under David Murray as a professor, and he's written a book, Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. Dr. Murray lives just up in Grand Rapids, and has learned the hard way that God has called us to be human. He has called us to live a life that reflects his grace and his rest in a culture that rewards burnout. Contrary to the rest that is common in our culture, which is run until you collapse, 
and then take a vacation. Work 80 to 90 hours a week until you hurt everybody around you, until your body is about to collapse, and then go recoup for a week and come back and do it all over again. The Bible prescribes a life that includes consistent patterns of rest. Our text reveals several things in Ecclesiastes about this concept of work and rest that I'd like to draw your attention to, and then I'd like to build out for you what I mean when I say the Bible prescribes for us a pattern of rest. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, begin reading in verse 22. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, begin reading verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Even when you try to rest, when you lay down to sleep, your mind is so full, your emotions are so overtaxed, your soul is so weary that even when you try to rest, you can't. My dad would always say, who was a pastor, who was a very faithful pastor, worked very hard, he would say, it takes me two days of vacation to even begin vacation. Because often it takes some time to, as we would say, decompress. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. It's better to have one handful of quietness than to have two hands overflowing of just toil and striving after wind. Wind. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The contrast there is not between someone who's poor and someone who has money. But the contrast is between someone who can labor and leave that labor and rest or someone who is continually laboring and striving with no end, thus heaping up riches around him and yet has no rest and no sleep. Heavenly Father, as we look into these passages, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts to receive Would you make us faithful, grace-paced Christians? In your name we pray. Amen. Last week I shared with you God's mandate and gift of work. And this week, this morning, God's mandate and gift of rest. And the first thing I'd like to show you is that a pattern of rest in your life is not only good, a pattern of rest, a consistent pattern of rest is actually commanded by God. I'm going to give you a lot of references this morning. I'll read most of them for you. If you're keeping track, you can write them down and look them up later. But in the Bible, we see God commanding a consistent pattern of rest for his people 
Later on, when the law is given, not only is this pattern of rest continued, but it's actually get, had, had, it actually has laws that are attached to it to help God's people rest. And the rest that is commanded for God's people in Scripture is something called the Sabbath. The Sabbath. It's instituted in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's not instituted in the Ten Commandments. It's not given first with the Decalogue, with the law of God. It's given at creation, the very beginning. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. We looked at that last week and how our God is a working God. But not only is our God a working God, our God is a working God who chooses to rest as well. And he rested on the seventh day, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation, instituted in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, commanded in Exodus chapter 20, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you will work all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord God. Referenced in the New Testament in several areas, Hebrews chapter 4, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and we need to labor to enter into that same rest that God has secured a rest for the believer. One reason why the Sabbath is disagreed upon today is because the New Testament is not prescriptive regarding how the church should observe the Sabbath However, a proper study of the Old Testament reveals that the pattern that God gives us rest in one day out of seven for a specific reason. This pattern was established by God both for the physical and spiritual benefit of man, and I believe strongly, and I believe you can evidence it from the New Testament, that that pattern of one in seven needs to continue for the benefit of man both physically and spiritually. You see, the Sabbath was a time for man to rest from his work pattern. One day out of every seven. You might say, Pastor Joe, I don't need rest that much. But God, knowing your limitations, knowing what is best for you, and knowing what you need, says otherwise. Mark chapter 2 and verse 27, Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man. God didn't need one day out of every seven. God doesn't need you one day out of every seven. You need one day out of every seven, and you need God. That the Sabbath wasn't created because God is some sort of needy God, that somehow if God doesn't have his people focused on him uh, one out of every seven, that God's going to somehow be incomplete. You need this, friend. Sabbath was made for man. And the requirements of the law on the Sabbath, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the requirements of the law given at Sinai, given in Leviticus, were fulfilled by Christ. Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to what festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And a lot of people will take that and will say, see, 
did away with the Sabbath. No, it doesn't say he did away with the Sabbath. It says he fulfilled the Sabbath, that all these have come to completion in Christ. And the law-keeping of the Sabbath fulfilled in the person of Christ, but the pattern of rest and the pattern that God has established in Genesis chapter 2 at creation is a pattern that still needs to be followed for both your physical and spiritual benefit. This was the purpose of the Sabbath in the Old Testament to remind the Israelites of the Garden of Eden and the rest and the relationship that Adam and Eve had as they fellowshiped with God. And as we set aside time to recognize our own version of the Sabbath, one out of every seven, we take that time and it reminds us of the rest to come in eternity and the fellowship that we will have with God in eternity because the purpose of the Sabbath is to set aside for your spiritual and physical rest. Breaking from the normal work pattern that you have on the other six days and setting aside special time with God's people. We won't spend any more time on this topic. We could, but Pastor Ben covered this topic completely and incredibly well over the previous two Sunday nights. If you still have questions about that, two Sunday nights ago and last Sunday night, Pastor Ben did a wonderful treatment of the concept of the Sabbath in Hebrews chapter 4 and what that means for the believer today. So what I'd like to do is define what exactly we mean by rest. Because I think that's important. So I was meditating on this this morning, uh, or this week. I, uh, I was trying to figure out, okay, when we say rest, what do we mean? Pastor, are you telling me that one day out of every seven, I have to stay in bed? I mean, do I have to sleep for that seventh day? Can I not do anything? Can I water my plants? Do, can I go out to eat? Do I have to buy all my groceries on Saturday like the children of Israel did with manna so that I don't do shopping on Sunday? Like, what do you mean rest one out of every seven? So I think it's important for us, before we go any further, to define what we mean by rest. The word in the New Testament that we see for rest, there are actually two words. One of the words in the New Testament refers specifically from uh, it talks about like the release of tension on a stringed instrument. It's talking about rest from suffering. So like when you're going through something really difficult, you've been really sick and then you wake up and you're like, you know, something just changed. I feel like, you know, I, I, I've turned a corner, often we would say, right? That's, that's this concept of rest, of, of that tension, that suffering being released. But the word rest that we would consider when we, when we talk about rest is, is the word that the, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That is the same Greek word used in that Old Testament and is used in our New Testament. And, it, and it, it's used to talk about rest, relaxation, or like a revival of attitude. Revival of attitude. Refreshed. To remain quiet. It's also used. When we look at this word through the New Testament, we see in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, as we read for our scripture reading, 
And also in the book of Revelation in heaven is this really interesting picture of those who are in heaven who are asking God to bring justice on sin on the earth. And God says that he's granted them rest from that. And that rest comes from God. God is the giver of rest. He's the source of rest. Without God, there is no genuine rest, refreshment, revival of heart. There is no true quietness of spirit without God. And friend, if I could lean into your family dynamic briefly, is that if there's ever a thought that would cross your heart that says, you know what, we need more than worship this morning. We just need family time. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to stay home and, and not go to church. I would, I would like to challenge that thinking. First of all, because very rarely does that actually turn into refreshing family time. Okay, first of all. Secondly, the refreshment that you need is not absent on Sunday from God's people or from God's word. Because the refreshment that you need isn't just sleep, because you can only sleep for so long. You need life and a reviving of soul and emotions and spirit breathed into you. And so I I don't think it would be biblically accurate, friend, to, to say I'm going to neglect the refreshing spirit that is brought into me through the gathering of the saints, through the resting in the word of God, through the proclamation of truth. I mean, we're not talking about running a a marathon together. We're not talking about expending energy in that way as a church family. We're talking about setting aside a period of, really, if you come to Sunday school and Sunday morning service, you know, a period of maybe... Three and a half hours for refreshment and rest in God. I think it's interesting that as you trace this theme through the New Testament, that specifically people can be a source of this rest. If you, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says the following, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, Because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. It's not refreshing to try to pronounce their names, but they, in their spirit and in their mindset, something about them, when they were around Paul, it refreshed him. 2 Corinthians 7.13 Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. He has been energized. He has found rest through you. This is the concept we're talking about here. We're not just talking about sleeping, although that is a vital part that we'll see later. We're talking about a renewal. Philemon, verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I mean, how many times have you woken up on a Sunday morning and thought it's going to be a drag to to get to church today? Just to get there is going to be a chore. 
And yet you make it an effort and you leave and you've never been disappointed, hopefully. You've never walked away going, well, that wasn't worth it, you know? That you find refreshment and you find rest through people. And I think it's be good for us to step back and ask a question. Are you the type of person that could be mentioned as a person who brings refreshment? Or are you the type of person that when you show up, you're a, you're a spiritual drain and you're an exhaustion to everyone? God is the source of this rest and refreshment. People can, can be a source that God uses, a hand of God in this, but I think also, before we leave the topic of rest, I think you need to recognize that you need this rest and you cannot ignore this rest. It's very interesting that God gives a a parable to us in Luke chapter 12. In fact, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, turn there, I'll read it for you. But if if you want to turn there, I, I think this would be beneficial for you to look at with your eyes to see what's happening here because sometimes when you read it and you hear it 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 resonates a little bit more in your heart Luke chapter 11 I'm sorry Luke chapter 12 chapter 12 I'm like that is not the right passage Luke 12 Luke 12 we'll begin reading in verse 16 Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And what Jesus is saying, the pattern that he's referencing, is that it was bigger and better, and then bigger and better, and then bigger and better, like his storehouses were growing and growing and growing, he had excess and he continued to work and work and build bigger and better so that when he decided that he had enough, he would stop. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The reason I draw your attention to that parable is because how many people have sacrificed health, family, to retire early, only to never be able to enjoy their retirement? Pastor, if I would have known that I would die at 68... I wouldn't have planned on living to 90 and sacrificed my family and my relationships and my health and retire at 67 only to look up and everything is gone. And I have all this wealth. I have no one to enjoy it with as is seen all through Ecclesiastes. I can't even enjoy it. And I have no rest. You may not have the the opportunity to retire, friend. That family vacation you've been planning to go on that you keep putting off so you can continue working, you may not have the opportunity to go on. 
I mean, how many of us say just a little bit more and I'll rest, just a little bit more and I'll rest, just a little bit more and I'll rest? Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. This is vanity. Pattern of rest. This rest, refreshment, reviving, however you want to say it, it's not inactivity. There are three things that I believe after reading, I read the book that I share with you, several other books on this topic, doing some research on sleep, which was very convicting, and, and reading some studies that have been done, I'd like to submit to you that, that this rest involves three things, okay? Biblical rest in this pattern in your life, Scripture says one out of every seven days, but... When we see this pattern given, when I say rest, I want you to think of three things. Number one, adequate sleep. Adequate sleep. Number two, ceasing from your normal work routine. Okay, that doesn't mean that you don't work. It means a cessation from your normal work routine. That's what rest involves. One, adequate sleep. Number two, ceasing from your normal work routine, staycation, vacation, leave your laptop at home time. And number three, engaging in physical and emotional reset. Engaging in physical and emotional reset. That looks different for everyone. For an extrovert, that may mean being around people. For an introvert, that may mean spending time alone. It may mean something different based on what your normal pattern of work is. My normal pattern of work here is both spending time with people and studying for the majority of my week in order to be prepared to minister to you effectively. And so for me, sitting alone and reading a book isn't necessarily breaking a pattern from my normal work routine. And for some of you, it's, it, you're like, that sounds like bliss. But for me, sometimes resetting emotionally and physically may look like mowing the grass. Why? Because grass doesn't have emotions. It may look like doing a DIY project at home and building something because you can hammer wood as hard as you want. And, and, And if you make a wrong cut, it doesn't cry, you know? For, for some of you who have more sedentary jobs, this may mean physical activity is your emotional and physical reset, not at the expense of adequate sleep, but it may mean getting out and doing something. And for those of you who work intense manual labor, it may mean sitting down and, and, and being quiet. This could include a good hobby, a productive hobby. For those of you who work with your hands, taking up woodworking as a hobby sounds like the worst thing imaginable, right? But for some of us who don't, it sounds like something that may actually reset our mind and emotions. Taking a nap may be the most spiritual thing you could do that day. 
spending time engaging in things that reset you physically and emotionally. And so to the best of my knowledge, I I never found all three of these like put together in a nice succinct list. And there may be something else that I'm missing. but, But I really believe that biblical rest for the New Testament Christian involves those three things. Adequate sleep, ceasing from your normal work routine, and engaging in a physical and emotional reset. If you just do two of those, it's not going to work. If you cease from your normal work routine, but you don't get sleep so that you can engage in what you want to do outside of work, when you go back to work, you're still exhausted, right? And yet if all you do is cease from your work routine and sleep, you get into trouble, So you need to have these three aspects of a consistent pattern of rest given to you by God. So number one, it's commanded by God. Number two, I'd like you to notice that this pattern of rest is actually demonstrated by Christ. It's demonstrated by Christ. Mark chapter 6 is really a a fascinating chapter because it outlines what happens in the cycle of our lives so much as well. Mark chapter 5, you have Jesus who heals the demoniac at Gadara, and then he hops in a boat and he goes to the other side, and he heals the lady with the issue of blood, And then he raises this girl from the dead. I mean, victory, 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 victory. High mountaintop, high mountain peak. And then he walks into his hometown in Nazareth and they reject him. He goes from mountain peak to valley. Chapter 6, he went away from there and came to his hometown. Disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? Is this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him? Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives. Verse 4. And he could not do any mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people. He marveled because their unbelief, and he went out among the villages. Mountaintop, mountaintop, mountaintop valley. Investment pays off, investment pays off, investment pays off, you lose everything. Work project goes well, boss is happy. Make a mistake. Then he sends out the 12 in verse 7. They go around. People are getting saved. They're casting out demons. Mountaintop. 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 Valley. Mountaintop. Mountaintop. Valley. You see a pattern? You guys ever seen that in your life? Good day. Bad day. Good day. Bad day. Okay day. It's probably going to get worse. Bad day. You know? It's just the pattern that we have. And then, verse 14 of chapter 6. John the Baptist is executed. His cousin. 
dear friend. Verse 27 of chapter 6, And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John the Baptist's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. Mountaintop valley, mountaintop valley, mountaintop valley. Grief. Grief. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. Or verse 31. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and let's rest a while. I need I need rest. I need a break. There's a pattern of resetting. There's a pattern of rest in your life, a regular pattern. And then there are those moments where you say, I need to step back. I, I, need, I need an extended Sabbath. I need vacation. Not a vacation of, of touring someplace in a different time zone where I'm exhausted when I get there for two days. My whole schedule is busy and then I get exhausted when I get back and I need a vacation for my vacation. I mean, I need to get away. And some of you wear this guilt on your heart because you think for some reason that's wrong. You think it's wrong after a time of intense suffering and weight and highs and lows and grief. And it's wrong to step away. Jesus patterns for us what healthy patterns of rest look like. Observing, observing the Sabbath, one out of every seven, yet taking the time to do deeds of mercy on the Sabbath but yet using it as a time of rest and then taking time away. Jesus didn't say, you know, this is just life. Suck it up, buttercup. I'll sleep when I'm dead. You ever heard that before? World's run by tired people. So if you're not tired, you're not working hard enough, which is kind of true. But if you're never catching up, you end up hurting those around you and hurting your work efforts. Commanded by God, it's demonstrated by Christ. And friend, I want you to see this pattern of rest is a gift from God to all people. Come to me, all who are laboring or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This, bo- this rest is a gift. I will give you. If you come to me, I will give you. You don't have to work like the unsaved world. You don't have to try to earn people's favor. You don't have to try to earn God's favor. When you come to Jesus, you come and you rest. You cast yourself in the arms of Christ. And not only is it a gift from God, it's a guarantee from God. That you come to God and you rest in who He is. And there's no more miserable person than the one who thinks that somehow he has to make God love him by doing and doing and doing only to find that I can never do enough. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen carefully. The rest that Jesus provides 
is a rest from the turmoil in your soul. It's the rest from the anxiety and the worry that sin brings. When you lay your head down at night, you ask yourself the question, what happens when I die? That God gives to his beloved sleep. I had the privilege of traveling this week and preaching at a Christian college and seminary in Iowa. And on the plane ride back on Friday, had the opportunity to sit next to a lady and, and um, she's wearing these beads on her wrist and, you know, always like striking up conversation. You can figure out pretty quickly whether you're next to somebody who wants to talk or not. And, and I said, hey, how are you? And where are you coming from? Coming from Iowa? Yeah, well, sorry, a stupid question. We both got on the same plane. Uh, what are you doing in Iowa? I'm working. Tell me about yourself. Well, you know, I've discovered myself because I've survived cancer. Oh, really? Can you tell me about that? I said, you know, I'm a pastor. I help a lot of people who are suffering. Can you help me by sharing with me what you learned through your experience so I can help others? And of course, she brightened up right away and we started this conversation. And she talked all about how she had learned to discover herself and how she had found strength and, and different things. And, and then I asked her, I said, have, did you find anything not just physically, praise, I'm so thankful, praise the Lord, that, that, that you found healing. I'm very thankful for that. And, I, and, and I'm thankful that through this, that your emotions have even found some, some healing. Let me ask you a question. Have you discovered anything spiritually through this? And her countenance totally changed, and, and she got a little bit sad. And She said, you know, I tried organized religion, and it just failed me. I told her, you know what, organized religion does that, doesn't it? Because anything that's set up by man is ultimately serving man, and it'll fail you every time. I said, did you try just God through Scripture? She said, no, I, I never tried that. So I shared with her, I said, let me, let, let me challenge you to do something. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you should take up this challenge. Open up the Gospel of John, and before you read it, just pray this. Prayer is anything but talking to God. Just pray, God, would you just show me who you are? Just show me who you are through the Gospel of John. And then just start reading. And commit that whatever you read, you'll believe. And see what God does. I don't remember her name. She never told me her name, but if you would pray for her when you think of her, she said she would do that. That her mom had a Bible and, and she would just look to the Scripture for answers. And you could see that even though she had somehow found the answer, she was still so burdened by life. And friend, you may be here because you've tried every church and you're still burdened down with care and work. You know what that phrase, heavy laden, means in Luke eleven forty six? It's the same phrase that God uses to pronounce woes on the leaders of the organized religion of the Pharisees that says you have taken these heavy burdens and placed them on the people of saying do this and do that and do this and do that without ever looking to God and allowing God being to be their rest. And friends, maybe if you haven't found the answer, it's because you haven't looked to Scripture. You've been looking to people for your answers. Or you've been looking to a certain denomination or a certain church for your answers rather than just saying, 
What does the Bible say? And let Jesus be my rest. And to cast yourself on him. And to find both the gift and the guarantee that I will give you rest. You can rest because you can't earn God's favor and you can rest because the work needed for your freedom was all accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. Pattern of rest demonstrated by Christ. It's a gift from God. I'd like to spend the rest of our time proving to you that this pattern of rest is actually best for you. It's best for you. Why? I want to give you, I think, four reasons. Four reasons why engaging in a regular one day out of seven spiritual and emotional rest, setting aside, if you want to say it plainly, setting aside Sundays in the New Testament context as a special day to cease from your normal work activities and be rejuvenated, both physically and emotionally, and then to have that as a pattern of every day after your work in some point, a regular pattern, whatever that looks like for you. Number one, it reminds us, the reason why it's best for you is because it reminds you, it reminds us of our human limitations. Rest reminds you that you are not God. Of taking a day to set aside and say, Pastor Joe, if I, I have a choice to work on, on Sundays or not, and if I choose to not take a break from my regular pattern of work, we're not talking about mercy ministries that are required, such as you know, law enforcement, healthcare professionals, if people, I used to tell my sister who's a nurse, we need to convince people not to get sick on Sundays, right? Never have to pull a weekend shift. I'm talking about mercy ministries or seasons of life in which it's necessary, but we're talking about as a regular pattern of your life, choosing, if I don't choose to make this a priority, I don't know if I can provide for myself and my family. And my suggestion would be that if you take these moments and allow God to provide for you, that God will never allow those whom he loves to be neglected. It may not mean that you can take exotic, extravagant vacation destinations, but it, mean you, it means that you can provide rest and fulfill your role as a disciple. For those of you that are, your tendency is to overwork, these periods of rest remind you that you are not a machine. You are not a disembodied angel. You are a physical human, just like the rest of us. And you need rest. I'd like to share with you some statistics. There's a BBC article that was written that was entitled, The Arrogance of Ignoring Need for Sleep. Where some scientists who wrote the article warned that to not think that you need sufficient sleep is not only supremely arrogant, it is also dangerous. They discovered that we are sleeping between one and two hours less per day, than, per night, than people did 60 or so years ago, and two and a half hours less than 100 years ago. And we're still humans. It's having a devastating impact on our physical lives, our physical condition. Just one week of sleep 
just one week, excuse me, of sleeping fewer than six hours a night results in bodily harm and damaging changes, including the narrowing of blood vessels, signs of brain tissue loss, chronic sleep deprivation is associated with the increase of infection, stroke, cancer, high blood pressure, heart disease, and infertility. So much so that you can actually find sleep coaches today where when people have fitness, I'm not saying, hold on, I'm not saying sleep is the answer to all your problems. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are some scenarios in which if a person is not sleeping enough, they will experience these physical issues that they would not experience if they got enough sleep. People with a consistent lack of sleep are 10 times as likely to develop depression and 17 times as likely to have significant anxiety problems. It's amazing what just adequate sleep does. There's so many things in our lives that are keeping us from sleeping. This is not a TED Talk on sleep, okay? Go talk to your doctor. I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards if you have more questions. I'm not a sleep doctor, but these are proven statistics and proven studies. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, but Pastor Joe, I'm different. I, I read an article where it said the percentage of people alive today who, need, who can survive on less than seven hours of sleep every night without being impaired, if you rounded that percentage up, it's zero percent, okay? That means you're not different if you think you are. It just means that there are areas in your life that are impaired that you don't even know about. And probably your spouse does, so just ask them. I thought this was interesting. The cognitive impairment that results from being awake for 24 hours straight is higher than the drunk driving limit in all 50 states. Disasters such as the Exxon oil spill, the Challenger space shuttle explosion, and the Metro North train crash in New York were all linked to sleep deprivation. People making decisions and working who had not had enough sleep. It's interesting when I get low and I talk quietly in this building. Sometimes there's some sleep deprivation that is obvious from my point of view. (laughs) Secondly, not only does it remind us, I'm not picking on anybody, just so you know. It reminds us of our human limitations. It also reminds us of God's sovereignty. It reminds us of God's sovereignty and care. By sleeping, we are relinquishing the belief that we are in control of everything and we're reminding ourselves, at least for a few hours, that God doesn't need you in this world. When you take a step back, Pastor Ben gave a great illustration. As a preacher, sometimes people give you an illustration and you're like, oh man, I wish that would have happened to me so I can give that illustration. It was so good. Right? And, and, and Pastor Ben gave this incredible illustration two weeks ago about driving in driver's ed and how the driver's ed driver wanted him to see something. So the driver's ed driver reached over and took the wheel and said, look at that. Don't worry about looking away. I've got the wheel. And that's what happens every time you Sabbath. And it's what happens every time you go to sleep. God doesn't need you awake to accomplish his mission. He chooses to use people to accomplish his mission, but doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. 
Most people would say that God is in control, but some of those same people would live as though everything depends on them. Psalm 3, 5, and 6, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Psalm 4, 8, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 127, 1 and 2, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. That means it's okay to go to sleep because God can handle it. It's hard, this is, I'll just be totally transparent with you, in my life this is where it gets really difficult because I am tempted to think, you know, if I go on vacation or if I'm gone, what is the church going to do when I'm gone? I mean, what happens if something happens? And I have some loving pastors who serve along with me here who remind me very often, you're not God. You need to leave and the church needs you to leave sometimes, you know. That we all need those moments to be reminded. I... I think I've shared this before, but every place that I've ministered in, when I've left, it's grown and gotten better. And God, I think God may be trying to tell me something, right? When, when I was a youth pastor, literally, the Wednesday after we left and transitioned to the wilds, it was the biggest youth group that they had had since I had been there and in like 10 years. And, and I called the youth staff. How, how did it go? And you know in your heart, you're hoping he's saying, oh, it was awful. Nobody showed up. Somebody tried to preach the word, but they accidentally opened the Koran instead. <laughs> you know. He said, man, it was great. We had such a wonderful time. We had a huge group. Yeah. We transition after being at the wilds for five and a half years, program director, preaching to the teens, overseeing the programming of the camp that would attract the teens, and we leave, and the summer that we leave was the largest summer on record. Maybe there is something that I need to learn. I don't know what it is, but it's such a good reminder, isn't it? It's like you retire from work and they give you a cake and say, bye. You're like, but I gave 35, 40, 50 years to this place. I know. See ya. We'll be okay. Rest reminds you that that's this life from God's perspective. God doesn't need you. He chooses to use you. That's not, again, the reason that we have to balance this with last week is that's not an excuse to be lazy. That's why you need work and rest together. But for those of you who are workaholics, you need to take a humble pill and realize that God doesn't need you. It also, number three, allows for longer and sustainable work. It reminds us of God's sovereignty and God's care for us. Number three, it allows for longer and sustainable work. What happens when you take the governor off a car? And you, Your car has a governor, which means if you floor it, it will only go so high. And it's RPMs, it will only go so high, it will only go so fast. 
Um, there was a place we used to vacation. They, the, the guy who owned the, the lake house had jet skis, and he had two sets of keys to the jet skis. One was the good set, and one was the baby set, is what we called them. And, and the, the little set, the baby set, would only let you go 35 miles an hour, and you could just hold on those, you know, and just as fast as you're going to go. But if you got the real keys, it still had a governor on it, but I think we clocked 66 miles an hour going down a lake on the jet ski. That's fast. And, and God has set a governor on your life, and it's the Sabbath to say, take a break. Step back. If a car doesn't have a governor, it'll totally blow the engine. It'll just keep going faster and faster and faster until it explodes, and your body will do the same thing. And when it does, you aren't the only one who's hurt, friend. You say, but Pastor Joe, I've read about these great Christians in the past who slept four hours a week, you know? They'd sleep four hours a night. They'd wake up, they'd pray for three hours when they woke up. Friend, we have some great Christian heroes, but they had flaws too. Did you know that many of them died very young and they worked themselves to death? John Calvin died at 54. Spurgeon died at 57. Spurgeon worked himself to death. So much so that it almost destroyed his church. You need rest. It allows for longer and sustainable work. As a note of recommendation, pay attention to what others are saying around you. Often they can see your situation much more clearly, much more objectively than you can. It allows for longer and sustainable work. Fourthly, proper rest, a pattern of rest, encourages sanctification and holiness. Did you know that you're a more godly person when you're rested? Did you know that? If you don't think that's true, stay awake for 24 hours and try to be patient and merciful and loving and kind. Often a busy life is the biggest enemy to resting in the presence of God. Friend, busyness does not equal godliness. Busyness does not equal godliness. It encourages sanctification in your life and that it encourages you to take a step back and to quiet your heart and your soul and to read the Word of God, to read good books. It encourages sanctification holiness because it encourages humility in your life. A pattern of rest reminds you that you can't do it all and that everything really rests in the arms of God. A proper pattern of rest encourages sanctification and holiness in your self-control. Did you know that studies have shown that a lack of sleep weakens your brain's center for self-control, leading to higher levels of unethical behavior? That the less sleep you have, the more unethical you become? Meaning, less sleep equals more sin. So get the rest that you need, friend. 
In conclusion, I'd like you to embrace your limitations and commit to living a grace-paced life. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read this verse and we'll be done. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only run, one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And how often is that verse taken out of context to say, go, 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 go. In order to properly understand what that language is trying to communicate, I'd like to read this from the Christian Standard Bible. It says it this way. Don't you know that all the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Friends, a Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. The Christian Standard Bible, the CSV, inserts that phrase to help you interpret what Paul is wanting you to see in his intent for that verse. And that is that you need to run in a manner that will let you finish. The only NASCAR race I've ever been to was in Charlotte Motor Speedway when I was in college, or in high school, excuse me, about to graduate. I had a friend who got tickets to a NASCAR race. Not a huge NASCAR fan. If you like NASCAR, it's great. If you don't, it's real simple. Just turn left. Keep turning left. Right. When I sat for the race and I sat in the stands with my ear protectors on, I was in awe at the strength of those engines. You could feel it. Every time the cars, I don't care how far up you are in the stands, every time the cars pass in front of you, you can feel it in your chest. And it's so loud. It's an amazing experience. Lots of rednecks everywhere, right? And you have to go for so many reasons to at least one NASCAR race. 2011 at Charlotte Motor Speedway. It's a great race. Neck and neck all the way to the end. The white caution flag came out near the end of the race. The green flag was given with one lap to go. Turn one, neck and neck. Turn two at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Dale Earnhardt Jr. starts pulling away. Turn three, you can hear the announcers. He's got got it in the bag. He's distanced himself from the pack. And as he goes into turn four, he runs out of gas. And coming out of the last turn with the checkered flag waving, Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s car slows down and he starts getting past. Kevin Harvick comes in from behind to win the race. Because he didn't run his race in such a way to win. Because somewhere along the way, he needed a pit stop to make it. And he didn't take it. The others did. I don't know D's mind, but did Dale Jr. think, oh, I, 
I, I don't need to stop. I got this. I don't, need, I don't need that pit stop. Others are taking it. I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll be fine. If I just push it a little bit harder, if I just, if I just grip the steering wheel, steering wheel a little bit harder, if I shift it just the right time, if I just push the pedal a little bit harder, I'll make it until he didn't. Friend, don't find yourself in that position. The doctor calls and it's a heart attack that could have been prevented. Stress leading to a stroke that should have been prevented. Live a grace paced life with consistent consistent patterns of resetting. Dale Earnhardt Jr. actually finished the race. He finished it with his car going real slowly as he coasted across the finish line and he finished seventh. Nobody remembers that he got seventh, just everybody remembers that he ran out of gas. And may we have a testimony, friends, that to the very end, we're serving the Lord with the capacity that he's given to us with patterns of grace and rest as a part of our life, taking the one day in seven for those three aspects of rest to be in a a focused part of our life, to find physical revival and refreshment and spiritual revival and refreshment as we work, and as we rest. Heavenly Father, would you take these principles from Scripture and would you help us to believe them? Help us to live with the humility to see that we need this. For those who tend towards laziness, would they see the divine imperative and gift of good work. And Father, for those who tend towards overwork, would they see what a gift and command godly rest is. There's someone here who's not a Christian. God, would you take their heart of stone and breathe into it life and turn it into a heart of flesh? that they might receive forgiveness and rest for their souls.